Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you've been listening. If you've missed any episodes, we've had some great guests, some great topics recently. So find our past episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website or Citizens Budget Commission website. For today's episode, we have something slightly different. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from a recent Citizens Budget Commission event. It was called Detroit, Puerto Rico, What Have We Learned? Could New York Be Vulnerable? It's talking debt and finances. And you're going to hear mainly from two people, Kent Haichu and Renee Boycourt. Kent Haichu is the former U.S. Treasury Director of State and Local Finance, And he was a point person on Puerto Rico, which, even well before being ravaged recently by a hurricane, was in significant debt trouble. Haichu is now in the private sector, where he does strategic advisory on municipal restructuring and infrastructure. He's also a senior fellow at NYU. Renee Boycourt is a financial advisor to New York authorities, Louisiana, and the municipal bond insurers of Detroit, Puerto Rico, and Alabama. While in 2013, the city of Detroit filed for Chapter 9 bankruptcy, the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history, and Puerto Rico is deeply in debt and struggling even before its recent damage via hurricane, New York City is not in such dire straits, but there are certainly lessons that can be learned from these two places and their experiences with debt and local finances. At the Citizens Budget Commission event, which you should know was taped in front of a live audience, Boycourt and Haichu discussed lessons that could be learned from Puerto Rico and Detroit and the vulnerability that New York City finds itself in with its debt despite its largely good financial position. And for today's episode of What's the Data Point, our data point is 60 plus, which is the combined years of experience of the two guests who give us a rundown on debt and the lessons that can be learned from Detroit and Puerto Rico and where New York City is in its debt structure and financing. Renee Boycourt and Kent Haichu. I hope you enjoy the episode and we will talk to you soon on What's the Data Point. So with those intros, I want to thank both of our panelists and I want to turn to the topic at hand. Um, So we're going to talk first about Detroit, then about Puerto Rico. And to kick it off, why don't you set the stage for us um, as to where we are in the fiscal crises that has emerged in Detroit. How did we get here? What were the key contributing factors? And what was the breaking point? Sure. Uh, So, um, thank you and good evening. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about combining these two places for tonight is that they are at very different places in the process. Um, CBC asked us to talk a bit about sort of what happened in each of these places. And um, we're going to assume that, or I'm going to assume that since you're here and you're interested, that you know something about Detroit and our time somewhat constrained, so this will be a little bit of a flyby. But I think that um, most people know the city, it grew for a long, long time. Um, its population peaked in about 1950, pretty early, really, uh, at about a million eight. And by 2010, it was down to about 700,000 people. Just a phenomenal decline, unlike you know any other big city in this country. Uh, I think the latest count is something like 260, I mean 765,000, 665,000. Not surprisingly, its fiscal condition follows suit. And, um, you know, in some ways it was a slow bleed. When you look at the, when you look at the numbers, you see this sort of steady progression as the city got smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, but around 2000 or so, things really did start to accelerate in terms of how it weakened. Um, and uh, in 2013, infamously, it filed for bankruptcy and then exited in, in two, late in 2014. It was very fast. Um, fundamentally, you know, Detroit's uh, contraction 
was, uh, you know, the old adage, and this will come up in Puerto Rico as well, where it's sort of the now old adage, that it's the economy stupid, you know, that it's, it really was uh, economically driven, that it had long, maybe, you know, even in the 30s, been a one industry town. And um, that lack of economic diversity was really at the, at the core of why it, it failed. Um, you know, and the auto industry, as I think a lot of us are very familiar with, um, thanks to management, labor, the globalization of the economy, just um, suffered a, a, a monumental, uh, you know, contraction. Uh, you know, beginning in the 70s, but the, the seeds were sown earlier than that, really. And you see the seeds of Detroit's contraction sown earlier than that as well. Um, you know, beyond the auto industry, um, other things that, that contributed to Detroit's path, it's a, it's a long list. Um, you know, weak leadership, both at the city level and in Lansing, um, ish, very complicated issues involving race, um, white flight that began very early, really, in the 50s. Um, and that was followed by the exodus of, of the middle class, really, of every race. Um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the big three auto companies as a labor management strategy started decentralizing their plants, including you know, near Detroit but outside of Detroit, very early, uh, and that hurt the city. Um, and there were a lot of federal policies that either, you know, benignly or deliberately, depending on who you asked, hurt cities a lot during that period, not just Detroit, but all over the country. Uh, you know, ironically, the federal highway system, in a way, was, it helped and it hurt, you know, in the case of Detroit. Um, you know, there were infamous redlining practices in terms of home ownership that affected the city and the suburbs. Uh, the suburbs were very segregated, uh, not just there, but in a lot of places. Um, and um, as if that weren't all enough, um, I guess I'd, I'd say sort of last but not least would be the pension system, which as you can imagine, had generous benefits, but even more important, it had a, a shrinking, and you, you know, look at those numbers from a million eight to 700,000 people, a shrinking base of active employees. And you know, pyramid schemes only work if you keep growing. If you start shrinking, pyramid schemes collapse. Um, interestingly, you know, bonded debt was a problem. It was growing, but it didn't really get out of control until pretty late in the game. Um, during uh, the uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, who was the second to the last mayor before the bankruptcy and had that kind of toxic combination of charisma and corruption, he brought in um, a, a pension funding deal, a billion four, which for a city that size, that's a, that's a large transaction, to fund retiree payments. And it was also, um, like a lot of deals in 2006, has swaps attached to it. So when the liquidity implosion in 2008 hit, it hit the muni market, it hit all the financial markets, it hit that deal pretty hard. Um, I still don't yet quite understand how they made it from, and, and you probably do, how they made it from 2008 to 2013 because they didn't, the city really didn't get anything out of the auto bailout and I hadn't thought about that a lot until I started sort of preparing for this. But in any event, they didn't, and they limped along until, until 2013 when they filed. Um, uh, you know, I want to stop here for a minute, and, and you know, this is very high altitude. If you're really interested in this, I, I recommend a book that <laughs> can't recommend it to me that I just, just read over the last week called Detroit Resurrected, which was written by this Detroit Free Press reporter and it's it's just terrific and the parts of the story that it tells that I was very very close to ring true so I think it's probably generally true um, and this is what he says about how all of this that I just described sort of culminated in 2013 he says that in, in 2013 the city government had morphed from a municipal services provider into a retiree benefits supplier 
with four out of $10 of the budget going to fund pensions, retiree health care, and to service debt, most of which was spent on retiree benefits. And people will quibble about whether that number is four out of 10 or three out of 10, but order of magnitude, it's right, and it was on a trajectory that was going up. Um, turning to the bankruptcy itself, um, while it only took a year, and a, a year and a half, it was, you know, as you can imagine, lots of, of twists and turns. Uh, when all was said and done, um, there were debt haircuts that ranged from, you know, zero for the water debt, water system debt, to uh, about uh, the geo holders got 72 cents on the dollar. The, uh, the, the most uh, severe haircuts were for these pension bonds that I described a moment ago that got 14 cents on, on the dollar, plus some Detroit real estate, kind of like, you know, which is bridge I want to sell you. Uh, although in this case it was a tunnel. Um, and uh, the pensioners took a haircut of 4.5% on their benefits, but in a way that understates the concession because they also lost their colas for good. And over time, especially when you think about, you know, public employees retire fairly young, losing a cola over time compounds and adds up to a lot, even in a low inflation environment. Um, and they lost much of their healthcare package. And then, of course, the city switched, as often happens in these distress cases, into a uh, defined contribution plan for the actives and future. Um, the, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the bankruptcy process was really fast. It was over and done in under a year and a half. I think it was 15 months, something like that. And I would say that's almost entirely due to the fact that Michigan has this system in state law where their, their approach toward dealing with distressed municipalities is this emergency manager that the governor can put in place and the emergency manager is essentially king. The, um, the local government, the, the mayor, the, the council loses all, every role they had, they're off to the side, they weren't at all involved. And while there were still a lot of people in the room for negotiating, it was far fewer than there would be in a, in a typical uh, financial restructuring for a city where you had the, had the local legislative body and a mayor involved. Um, and that's, that's really why it got done so fast. Um, and, you know, keep that in mind. Um, in terms of how the city is doing now, I imagine you've read the articles that are out there now. There's a lot of happy talk about the Detroit recovery. Um, I hope it's true. I'm a little skeptical. If you, if you drill down, um, you know, the, the positive news is all focused on a very small geographic area. Detroit's a very far-flung city, which is part of this problem. Um, there's a corridor downtown that, that is getting traction. Uh, it's maybe eight square miles out of the 139 square miles that make up Detroit. And there is still a tremendous amount of, of blight in the outer reaches of the city. Um, but, you know, there, there are some green shoots, I'd say, and um, you know, the Kresge Foundation, which is one of the foundations that stepped up and, and is very involved in the city, they have this flywheel concept, which is you get some energy in the center and then that spins off um, you know, energy to get development elsewhere. And uh, Dan Gilbert of Quicken, who has invested a tremendous amount in this city, is, holds a similar view. He's a big advocate of density, uh, which is interesting because traditionally, historically, Detroit was not a dense city, you know, and it's trying to reinvent itself as a dense city, and that density kind of has this magic. Um, let's, hope that's, let's hope that's true. Um, you know, stepping back from Detroit and thinking about what does this mean for municipal distress, what's the takeaway, you know, could it happen here, which I think was maybe on the program at one point. And, could it happen here? Let's not answer that yet. Yeah. yeah. Let's okay. not answer that we'll yet. Wait. Okay, we'll wait. Let's let's wait because I do want to get to that. Okay. Because I think That's that great. we should let's let's so so that was a great stage setting for Detroit. And what now I'd like to have Kent do is to talk a little bit about Puerto Rico. 
um, kind of a similar stage setting, and then I think we can talk a little bit more about compare contrast and what does it mean for us. Good. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Renee. So um, the stage setting is going to be a little different because um, I'm Kent and that's Renee. Um, <laughs> but the, the situations are very different. We're at it seems like forever, but we're really still at the beginning of the Puerto Rico issue, whereas uh, Detroit was at least finished in terms of its restructuring, and now we're looking forward to what happens in Detroit, and we're not at that spot in Puerto Rico yet. Also, um, it's very important to think about what Renee just said in terms of Michigan. Um, very different situation when we're talking about municipal distress versus Puerto Rico is the equivalent of a state. So. When Renee's talking about um, Detroit, the parent of Detroit, the, the entity that created Detroit is the state of Michigan. So when I think about Puerto Rico, I think of Washington, D.C. as being Michigan, and Puerto Rico as being Detroit. That's just a framing of the issue that you might want to think about. So if we're talking about New York City you know, 40 years ago, if we're talking about Hartford today, there is a state entity um, that under our federalist system is responsible for those municipalities. What happens when we have a state that gets in trouble that's not even a state? Um, Puerto Rico is a territory. So with that sort of background, what I, what I thought I'd do is put you in my place three years ago and think about what we were looking at at Treasury as we began to examine the problem in Puerto Rico. I'll move quickly to then what was our proposed policy response and then very quickly sort of give you uh, where we stand today in a very high level um, look at it. What I won't do, which Renee did a terrific job in Detroit um, because it, it is a lengthy story, is, but I would be glad to address in Q&A, is my view on how we got here, um, which uh, is unique to Puerto Rico in many respects, but I think um, in order to understand Puerto Rico, that lens is, is, is important to, to build out. So, this will be sort of dry. Um, stick with me for a little bit. Um, but I think Puerto Rico is such a complex, uh, confusing, uh, politically toxic issue um, in many corners that the facts kind of get left out very quickly. So just from my perspective, I'm sitting in Washington. People are <coughs> saying Puerto Rico is melting down. What's going on? So 3.4 million residents. Uh, they didn't have the population loss that Detroit did. but over the past 12 years alone, they've lost 10% of their population. And a lot of people think it's all the wealthy leaving. That's, in fact, not the case. If you're wealthy, you often have the means to have a very nice life in Puerto Rico. In fact, it's the young people that are leaving, which is particularly disturbing in terms of the future productivity and economics of the island. It's people looking for a better life in the mainland who are leaving Puerto Rico. In fact, the percentage of the population that's over 65 um, increased by 50% just in the past, since in this century, since 2000. Um, second, very, very weak economy that's not particularly well connected to uh, the mainland U.S. economy. So when Renee flew to Detroit every time for all those meetings and those negotiations, she hardly knew that she was attending to a fiscally distressed entity when she arrived in the airport. That was a completely different experience. It was like any other airport in the United States. And Detroit was anchored to its suburbs and its uh, state and to the United States economically in a way that Puerto Rico is not. Remember, it's a big ocean out there. <laughs> um, and so its GNP has contracted in 11 out of the last 12 years, it started before the recession, and it's still going on. In total, a 16% contraction uh, since 2005. Its unemployment rate is 12%, approximately. Um, it would be higher if there hadn't been the 10% out-migration. Um, and quite disturbingly, its labor participation rate, something I didn't think about when I was a muni banker, um, but I was well informed by the sovereign economist at the Treasury, is two-thirds of the United States. So the average in the United States labor participation, people in the workforce, is 66%, 65%. In Puerto Rico, it's 40%. The median income in Puerto Rico is about $19,000 a year. Um, that's um, 
uh, one-third of the U.S. median. It's 50% of our lowest state, um, Mississippi. Um, that's the economic population demographic background. Fiscally, um, their, Puerto Rico's financial situation is incredibly complex, partly because it's poorly documented, transparency is terrible. Um, but if you look at audited financial statements looking backwards, the average gap deficit is $4 billion on tax revenues in the general fund of about $9 billion. So over 40%. How did this happen? The Constitution has a balanced budget requirement. Um, these deficits were funded over many years with just straight out deficit financings scoop and toss debt restructurings for those of us in the public finance market to understand what that means. Uh, loans from a government development bank, which sounds like it's a Fed, but it's nowhere close to a Fed, um, but it's an, a unique entity that doesn't exist in any other state in the United States that sort of harkens back to Rexford Tugwell and all the socialists who sort of took responsibility for Puerto Rico in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, and Another form of borrowing that we don't think about, uh, Carol certainly does and CBC does, but when you don't fund your regular pension payment, your ARC, you're borrowing money. And that was a significant way in which Puerto Rico was able to operate and have the liquidity to operate with a $4 billion, 40% annual deficit on a gap audited basis. They, they ran a balanced budget. They never ran out of money. <laughs> so didn't they have a balanced budget? Well, not really. Um, Top this off with a complex debt stock that I'm talking only about the central government now. I'm not talking about PREPA and PRASA, the utilities, of 12 separate credits, the best that Wall Street had to offer, um, that uh, amounted to $50 billion. All that debt, however, was secured by the single taxing authority of the government of Puerto Rico. So effectively, the, the Commonwealth's economy was supporting $50 billion of debt. The economy is only $70 billion um, GNP. Um, the debt service on this uh, debt amounts to about 3 .5 to $4 billion. Again, that's by S&P standards so far off the chart, it doesn't count in terms of what other states have, which is usually around 6% um, on average, I think. Uh, this is more like a third. Um, the most troubled states have maybe 10 to 12%. Um, lastly, an unfunded pension liability um, of about another $50 billion, um, the benefits of which amount to about $12,000 per year payable right now. And they've already done a number of reforms that have moved the large percentage of the pensions into a defined contribution. So that's not something that is necessarily an easy solution in bankruptcy. It's not available uh, in the same way it was in Puerto Rico. So finally, with all that sort of data, how is this all possible? I go back to Puerto Rico has a overly complex, larger than the size of its population warrants government, um, that um, the structure is complex and the absence of adequate fiscal transparency, which has contributed both to the accumulated deficit and debt and also the difficulty of stakeholders in understanding the nature and the magnitude of the crisis. So that's what I'm looking at three years ago. Um, I think, again, getting back to our Constitution and our Federalist um, form of government that I talked about at the outset, that absent uh, any systemic risks to the broader economy, and the broader capital markets, which we at Treasury concluded did not exist with regard to Puerto Rico, did not exist, that the federal government has no clear standby loan or loan guarantee authorities with which to intervene in state or local government financial crises. There's, we had many lawyers that were given, were, were, uh, were paid a lot of money to come and tell Treasury what authorities we had to help Puerto Rico. Uh, and in every case, um, you know, we concluded that that was a stretch and it wasn't available. But furthermore, any such intervention would be contrary to what I think we all understand is longstanding bipartisan federal policy against moral hazard risk. Um, and so the, the intervention 
um, of the federal government was non-existent in Detroit, right? Detroit had Michigan, uh, and they had Chapter 9. They had emergency manager. Uh, they had the tools to deal with that um, problem. Uh, Washington, D.C. did not intervene at all in, uh, in Detroit. New York City, 40 years ago, another issue, another time. We can talk about that. But as a general matter, New York City and, to a very small extent, Washington, D.C. in the late 90s were exceptions to that rule. Um, therefore, from the outset of our policy thought process, uh, we concluded that there would not be a bailout for either Puerto Rico or for the creditors, that that was not the right policy and it wasn't clearly the right politics. Um, so then the question was, okay, so what do you do? Um, and our first conclusion that was that um, the people of Puerto Rico uh, are very sensitive to this and uh, object to it, but the fact is that Puerto Rico is a territory in the United States, and the Constitution is quite explicit as to what that means. And it means that Congress regulates and makes rules as it relates to the territories. Um, and so we concluded without any uh, policy tools at the federal government that were on the shelf and ready to deploy from an administrative point of view that we needed to go to Congress and ask Congress to address the issue. And that's what we did. Uh, and what did we ask for? We asked for four things. Uh, the first was that um, because of Puerto Rico's existing financial institutions um, had failed and their credibility urgently needed to be restored, um, we thought that needed to be done through tried and true experience of a financial control board or oversight board of some kind. Second, Puerto Rico's debt we viewed as being unsustainable and needed to be restructured. When I say debt, I mean indebtedness, bonded indebtedness, and pension obligations, and any, any other obligations. But because Puerto Rico did not have Chapter 9, access to Chapter 9 through a quirk in the law that we can talk about, it, unlike Detroit, it didn't have access to Chapter 9. And in my view, unlike Detroit, Chapter 9 wouldn't have even been an appropriate tool for Puerto Rico because it's not really a municipality, which is what Chapter 9 is for, not for states. Under our Constitution, states aren't eligible for Chapter 9. Um, that there needed to be a special court-supervised, um, federal court-supervised restructuring authority made available to deal with that problem of the uns unsustainability of the debt. Third, um, again, without going into the history, um, territories are treated very differently than states as it relates to Medicaid and much of Puerto Rico's fiscal problems can be traced to the gap between what they spend on Medicaid and what they receive um, from the federal government. It's a block grant, sound familiar? Uh, it's not an FMAP, as all the states get. Um, and then finally, um, uh, in 1996, uh, a significant tax incentive uh, program for U.S. corporations to locate in Puerto Rico was phased out over 10 years, which certainly is a factor in what uh, drove Puerto Rico's problems. Uh, and so we advocated creating some kind of tax incentive program. We thought 936, the expired program, was enormously inefficient. Most of the money was going to corporations, not to Puerto Rico. So we proposed an earned income tax credit like the United States has uh, to encourage not only economic growth, but to encourage people to move into the labor force. Um, in June uh, a year ago, Congress enacted bipartisan legislation that's called PROMISA, and it created a seven-member oversight board, which um, was given control over Puerto Rico's fiscal governance, and it was given Chapter 9-like bankruptcy uh, restructuring authorities. Um, PROMISA, importantly, did not address the Medicaid and the economic um, development incentives that we thought were necessary. So what's the current status? Very quickly, and then we can uh, move on. Um, the board was constituted in September a year ago. Uh, there was an election, by the way, in the middle of all this was, was <laughs> not helpful. Um, the, the board certified what, pursuant to PROMISA, requires a long-term fiscal plan. In this case, it was a 10-year fiscal plan that provides for a balanced budget. Um, and it did so by um, uh, instituting fiscal austerity moves regarding pension cuts, health care and education cuts, significantly, uh, in the front end anyway, municipal subsidy and University of Puerto Rico cuts. Um, 
downsizing the school system, which there's way too many schools for the number of students, um, having a long-term plan for trying to reconcile this gap between what's provided in healthcare and what's received from the federal government, and importantly, a, uh, at least for the first 10 years uh, during the term of the, of the plan, a reduction in debt service of 75%, that $50 billion that's payable out of the taxing authority, which is $3.5 billion, uh, the plan provided for only about $800 million a year without designating who was going to get that of the 12 competing credits. Secondly, as the legislation requires, once you have a certified fiscal plan, you need to, just like New York City, you need to implement that plan with annual budgets. And so on June 30th, the first certified budget under PROMISA was put into place. Importantly, without the consent of the governor and the legislature, who would not do exactly what the board felt needed to be done for that first installment, that one-tenth of the fiscal plan. So under the law, the board has the ability to unilaterally impose that budget on them, and they did so. Um, creditor negotiations were um, commenced. Renee and I will discuss that in a moment. Um, but um, very quickly, it was concluded that wasn't going to be successful. They had a fiscal plan, which was a precondition to filing under Chapter 9, like bankruptcy authority called Title III under the legislation. And that was done so in early May for almost the entire Commonwealth. Um, there have been a series of procedural, I, sh I should use a different word other than serious. There's been a plethora <laughs> of litigation and uh, procedural decisions um, by the federal judge who's here in New York, who's in charge of the case. I would say, Renee might have a different view, I would say overwhelmingly the decisions by the judge so far have uh, favored the oversight board's views and has supported uh, the, 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 the legislation overall. Um, so maybe... Lastly. Oh. Okay. Lastly. Lastly. All right. I haven't gotten to the punchline yet. Uh-oh. Really? The okay. governor has resisted implementing uh, certain of the key elements of the fiscal plan. And so as the PROMISA law allows, uh, the board took the governor to federal court to force him to impose furloughs and pension cuts, which they believed he had agreed to and which he uh, was objecting to. And then the punchline is everything I've said up to now may go out the window because this all existed before Hurricane, Hurricane Maria. Maria. So that's my, my conclusion. Thank you. That is a big punchline. So <laughs> that, that, that um, so, so Ken, thank you for that. And, um, you know, I do think that folks might be curious and I can leave it for the Q&A about how Maria might influence all of this. Um, what I wanted to do before we turn to what this might mean to New York is just focus for a minute on these two stories. Um, I'm actually hearing, hearing you guys talk about them being sort of in the middle of this. I sort of thought coming into it that these stories would be very similar, but in fact they seem totally different. Um, so could you, and you know, they're different because one, you know, is a city, one's a territory. I don't think I fully appreciated, you know, some of the differences in terms of policy response, and you've really highlighted that. Um, but what, what, what are the, um, you know, I'm curious what the Puerto Rican story, because it's still playing out, what it can really learn from Detroit, which did seem to be, I mean, I know you've said that we don't know, you know, there are some green shoots, will it be successful? But it was resolved quite quickly, to your point, you said within about 18 months. And is a swift resolution something that's sort of important for these cities and territories to move on. So maybe if you could talk, since you both have experience in Puerto Rico, about what Puerto Rico really has to learn potentially or what can be applied, both good and bad, from the Detroit situation. Lessons learned from that bankruptcy proceeding. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think fast is better. Um, and, and often the argument in favor of a Chapter 9 in places where, uh, you know, localities where they're eligible is that it will be this orderly forum, mm -hmm. and that that absent that, there will be chaos and litigation, and nothing will get done. Um, and I think there's some some truth to that. But in fact, when you there haven't been a lot of Chapter Nine bankruptcies 
where there was a lot of bonded debt involved. There just aren't that many. There are dozens and dozens of little places that don't have bonds or little places that aren't really cities. But um, there really are very few. And if you look at them, there are a handful in California. There was this big water and sewer system um, right after the financial crisis in you know, 2010 or so in Alabama. Um, there's Detroit, and now there's Puerto Rico. And um, Detroit is really the only one that's been fast. And you know, as I said before, it was, I believe, because of this very strong emergency manager. And um, unfortunately, in, in, this, in PROMESA in Puerto Rico, um, the politics were such that to have an oversight board that, that, that had that kind of heavy-handed power in a place that was very sensitive to um, being treated as a colony, that, that just wasn't going to happen. And so you, you, know, you have a, a control board that has some power, but nothing like what the emergency manager had in Detroit. Or, um, or even D.C. Or even D.C. which Or is New a, York City. D.C. is a great success story, actually, without bankruptcy, with a, a very effective oversight board and a whole lot of federal money, by the way. But um, so I, you know. D.C. I, was a federal bailout. It's I just think not it's, called that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> D.C. came along. The, the Congress came along and said, how about that pension liability? We'll just take that off your hands. And <laughs> that'll, that goes a very long way. How about that jail system and court system? Yeah. We'll take that yeah. over, too. Um, so, yeah, in addition to it being early yet, I don't think it's going to be quick, even before the hurricane. I mean, I just, and now um, I'm, I'm working for one of the creditors, and I think that, um, you know, it's just a, everybody's starting over. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen to this place. What's, how many people are going to leave? Um, you know, how much help will the federal government give to rebuild, and how will that work? Um, and what in bankruptcy, you know, what'll come out of that? You know, can it can it be resurrected? Um, and, you know, uh, yeah, I like to be an optimist, and there are these certain places like the electric utility where I actually think it could end up being much better. It's actually it's actually oddly good that its electric system got wiped out by a hurricane because now they don't have to pretend they can rebuild that horrible electric system. But that's probably the only place where you can sort of say this was remotely a good thing. And I think it's going to shrink even more, probably. And um, it's going to be a very different negotiation between, between the oversight board and the creditors. So I agree with all that. I would just add a different lens, which is um, inside Treasury, there was always a debate about, is Puerto Rico a sovereign economy, or is it a municipal entity? Um, it sold, you know, $70 billion of debt into the municipal market, um, but it's neither fish nor fowl. One of my favorite stories was the sovereign economists who, you know, wanted to start learning about Puerto Rico, wanted to know on what date all $70 billion of debt was coming due. And uh, they had no, they thought, you know, it's like a sovereign country that has a single credit and they sell bullet maturities. And I tried to explain a mortgage loan and I said the answer is the debt's coming due every six months for the next 30 years and uh, it's 12 different credits. So Argentina very much informed Treasury's thinking about mm. this, and I would uh, concur with Renee that faster is better, mm -hmm. and that um, the classic view is if you have unsustainable level of debt, the faster that you can uh, restructure that debt to, an, to a sustainable level, um, you can begin to have economic growth. That's very easy to say from a policy point of view, it's incredibly difficult to implement in um, the United States, especially with a territory and with the limited tools that we have. But yes, one lesson is, well, what the, the best lesson is don't get yourself in this situation. You know, take the steps today to prevent that from happening, which New York City, fortunately, has been doing for 30 years post, uh, post its financial crisis. But yes, soon, faster is better, but it's not as easy as you might think. The other factor here is in addition to emergency manager, there was a governor running for a re-election who basically every day called up you Kevin Orr and said, I want this fixed before I run for re-election. Yeah, Some I good think, political um, pressure. I think Kent touched on something that um, is, has been very interesting about this whole sort of journey is that 
you you know the municipal world the fiscal distress world we look we look at things a certain way and a lot of it's informed by what happened to new york city in the 70s and subsequently that's kind of the way we think about it and we have debt instruments that work a certain way and we have this model of, of an oversight board or a control board and it works you know to varying degrees of success and um you know new york is sort of where it got invented really and that you know that recipe has been taken out across the country um so that was all there and then when when chapter nine bankruptcy kind of became this new this new way to deal with this stuff it was as though the it's a completely different culture really it's just this, there's a bunch of people that work in the bankruptcy world and the way they frame the world is completely different. So it's, it's as though you, you show up on a field thinking you're gonna play lacrosse and they're gonna play football. It was just completely a shock. And then fast forward to Puerto Rico and now it's all these sovereign people and they look at the world a certain way. And it's been, it's been very interesting to see just the way you count money, the way you think about, sol about problem solving, the way you think about debt, everybody kind of having to adapt to these different these different frameworks. So before we open it up to questions, let me just ask then, because it has been something that you've wanted to address since the get-go. So could this happen, something like this happen in New York City and New York State, um, and why or why not, and where are we potentially most vulnerable to something like this? Right. So if you could so, bring, it, bring it home for us. Yeah. So. You know, first, just looking kind of across the U.S. and setting aside Puerto Rico for a moment, the you know the confluence that that is just really bad news is a lot of leverage, particularly pensions, but also bonded debt, um, and a stagnant or shrinking economy, and then you layer on a dysfunctional government, and then that's like the trifecta. You're going to have a problem, um, and. You know, unfortunately, there are a lot of places like that across this country, and I think there will be more, more Chapter Nine bankruptcies. Now, New York City, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it that way. It has, you know, it has a lot of issues, obviously, that this group and that CBC is very well acquainted with. Um, the entity, you know, in our immediate sphere that I worry about the mo most, and I could see, you know, careening to kind of a showdown about its leverage is the MTA. You know, the MTA um, is very indebted. It has a serious pension problem. You know, I forget what percentage of the fare goes to pensions. You probably know that. Um, and, you know, it's just a, it's, it's in a tough place. And while it currently isn't allowed to file, um, that's a state law. That could get changed. The legislature could change that. Um, you know, is that imminent? No. But it, that's the one that I kind of worry about. More broadly, and thinking about you know the upstate cities and cities in other places, it you know it, it used to be that states discouraged their localities from filing because there was a view that there was a contagion effect to neighboring jurisdictions, that it would hurt the reputation of the state as a place to do business. There were all these reasons that you didn't want your localities to file. But I think that view is changing. And I think Hartford, Connecticut is an example of that. They haven't decided what to do yet, but they're certainly thinking about it. And you know, the contagion thing just kind of, it's just kind of not true. You know, um, it, hurt, it hurts a little bit for a little while for other jurisdictions to borrow in our market, but not for very long. And in the same regard, mm. I think, you know, again, the sovereign experience is that, um, entities have a remarkably quick return to the capital markets if they solve the problem. So also the taint of, well, if you file for Chapter 9, you're never going to be able to access the capital markets just doesn't have any, it sounds good and it's what we all believe, but it's probably not true. Um, I would just add that I think in thinking about New York City and, and all these entities, the municipal market has generally has a, has a toolbox that Renee has described that deals with liquidity problems. There is a big difference between a liquidity problem and an insolvency. And so as we, and I, and I believe Detroit was insolvent, I, I believe Puerto Rico is insolvent. Um, I'm not convinced about the Hartford, I don't know enough about it. But, and I don't even think New York City was insolvent in the 1970s. It had billions of, of rands that had, or bands that had to roll over, but it wasn't insolvent. Right. So, 
Yes, sorry. So short-term paper that that need that was not going to be bought by the banks, but um, so coming up with dedicating a sales tax as a way to bonding out that problem, that's a that's a good solution for that problem. But we have to make sure that we're thinking about what the problem is, and what the right solution for that particular problem is. So. Good. Well, can I open it up to any questions, Jake? I guess my question is a little bit New York focused, but in, and particularly about Detroit. In my simple real estate view, I wonder whether is the land use policy part of what Detroit, why Detroit got in trouble. I guess I remember reading an article once long ago that Bloomfield County is extremely affluent, you know, very well run, high property taxes, all that kind of stuff, and sort of runs relatively swimmingly. Um, how much of it is sort of a, you know, New York is, I shouldn't say what New York is, but whenever you have a situation where people can have, sort of be just outside the city, you can still commute in for your work, but be outside from a residential population. How much is that the dynamic that is sort of played out in Detroit? Um, I think it was a big part. I think um, you, could, you could exit the city. Detroit, however, has a pretty big footprint. You know, it's, it's, it's famously eight miles to the border from downtown, and which doesn't sound that far, but you know, for that city it was. Um, you know, I think about um, Hartford, that's a big problem with Hartford. Hartford's this tiny little city on, in terms of the line on the map, and it, it has, you know, when, when you drive through Hartford, you, you, you think you're in Hartford when you're not in Hartford, you're in West Hartford. East Hartford, or, you know, a lot of the a lot of the economic activity is not in Hartford, and then the schools are great, and you know there are all these advantages to being outside of the city. I think that that can be a very a very good point. Dallas, for example, in Texas, generally speaking, the cities can annex without the permission of the sprawl that they're annexing. So that's why Houston is so big. Houston is just humongous because as it grows, it gets to just say, "You, you're now part of Houston," right? So Houston just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so it has this massive tax base, and there's no flight out of Houston because you can't escape, right? But in Dallas, for some quirky historic reason, you can. And that's why Dallas is in trouble and Houston isn't, you know? So except it is, except for the hurricane. Yeah. The but they'll get, they'll get plenty of But I mean, New York, New York yeah. City in the 70s had the same problem. Yeah. You know, anybody could just go to Nassau, Westchester, uh, Fairfield County, or Bergen County. Uh, so, yeah. It's even more complicated when we have three states involved. Yeah. Brian? Um, uh, interesting uh, commentary on Detroit as well as uh, Puerto Rico, but specifically Puerto Rico and the advent or the view of the fact that they just experienced this horrific uh, Category 5 hurricane. There are economic repair. Curiously, there has been a shrinking reference, in my view, of investment, uh, you know, particularly in areas where um, the infrastructure is poor, the economic situation, the outlook doesn't look to be anything promising. Why, why do you think we talk about EB-5 less? It's EB-5, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, EB-5 is, um, it's, it's foreign, uh, foreign dollars uh, that is used uh, uh, for infrastructure and or other uh, projects here in the United States. And, foreign investor um, will be able to obtain some sort of a visa uh, to come to the United States. It's, so. yeah, buying access to the United States. Yeah. 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 Um, actually, idea. I don't know if you know this, but my understanding was that the largest EB-5 processing office at one point was in the Detroit area. Interesting. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think EB-5 is, it's a controversial policy from a lot of different perspectives, but leaving that aside, I don't think it deals with the magnitude of the fundamental problems we're dealing with here. I think it, you know, it might be part of a solution, it might not be, but I, I, I don't think it's a game changer in terms of the types of issues that, that Puerto Rico is facing. At one point there was a view that it could be the location for all the, uh, um, and this wasn't just jokingly, um, for all the um, fleeing population of uh, you know, of the Middle East. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, it, it needs population growth. Yeah. Um, it's not clear that Puerto Rico has a reason to exist at 3.4 million today versus 
before globalization and before the end of the Cold War. There's a question in the back. I was going to say, Renee, you used a great word, uh, imminence. And uh, so <coughs> it seems to me that there's a lot of really smart people looking at these problems over time. And a lot of people see these problems coming, uh, but there's not enough tools for mayors and county executives and other people to address this earlier. Uh, I remember having a conversation not long ago with mayor in upstate New York saying, I know we're going to hit the wall. 70% of my spend on every dollar is going to pensions and benefits. We're not in trouble now, but in two years we are. We can't control that until we actually hit the wall. Why aren't there more tools, or, or do you see that there are more tools out there that local governments can use to avoid the problem earlier? So, I mean, I... I think you've you've focused on the the hardest part of all this, which is that you know a a democratic solution to this pension problem is this is really hard to ask elected officials who have to run every four years and often in local localities every two years to to do really hard things now that will avert something really bad that's going to happen you know, 10 years out, 15 years out. There are quite a few places that um, I heard somebody call it uh, dead plan walking in terms of the pension system, <laughs> that you model it even with a fair amount of optimism and then it's just, it's just done, right? And it hits a, a liquidity wall. But, you know, watch places try and deal with this. Lots of places are willing to, you know, open up a a um, defined contribution plan for new employees, some even, you know, from today forward for existing employees, but there are just a bunch of places where that's not enough. There are just a bunch of places out there like that. And I, it's tough. I don't, I don't think it's tools as much as will. And every now and then you have leadership that takes it on. But, um, you know, I think I'm not a big fan of Chapter 9. I'm not a big fan of bankruptcy. Um, but I think, you know, our regular institutions aren't dealing with that problem. They're just not. They're just failing. Isn't it an accepted fact that the government workforce is much higher as a percentage of the population than the United States and that the relationship between the wage level of government workers and the private sector is way out of at least compared to continental U.S. And was that, I mean, was that part of your recommendation at Treasury uh, to, to tackle that problem? And, I mean, is that, I mean, is that being tackled? I mean, you, just, you step back and think about like Puerto Rico. They have a tremendous amount of advantages. They don't need to, I mean, their tax situation is very advantaged. Uh, it's a beautiful island with direct access to you. I mean, it's, 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 you set it up and tell someone in the vacuum and then you say that they're in this situation, you want to know like how badly and shops are managed or anything. Um, so that's that's why the that's why it? the hedge funds bought three and a half billion yeah. of debt in 2014. That was those were the yeah, I mean, the they, positives. They figured that you, you know the, the government was going to bail them out as they have bailed out a lot of people, and they might, no. and they might still and they might still be bailed out. Too, Actually, you know, they expected the mini market to bail them out okay. um, after three years. Right, and, um, I mean, and, and you know another obviously another problem where you go has is the triple tax exemption. Obviously, incentivize people to to fund their uh, uh, their. Right. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Um, um, listen, you're not wrong about the um, the heavy uh, tilt towards the public sector versus the private sector in terms of their employment. Uh, how one changes that quickly um, and how does one construct policies that changes that quickly um, on something that's been going on for 50 years, um, 70 years, uh, is very hard. But that's one of the responsibilities of the fiscal, the, the oversight board, is to right-size the government. It's very hard to do in a democratic fashion, um, and it has to be on both sides. You can't just cut the public workforce. You have to grow the private workforce. The way you grow the private wor workforce is to have economic development. I have talked to dozens of economists and said, what's the solution for Puerto Rico? I have not gotten a particularly Optimistic, positive, constructive answer. The proposal, sorry, to, to, to like privatize like the electricity. I mean, once you like you know hit have a huge haircut of the debt to start privatizing things, then then the mainland or private or is that part of the? Everybody's 
Privatization, yeah. I think um, if it wasn't the unanimous view of the people of Puerto Rico, the creditors, uh, the government, and um, and the oversight board before the hurricane, I think today there is a uh, PREPA is a reviled institution on the streets of Puerto Rico before the, the hurricane. I'm sorry, it's the Electricity Authority. You know the. Uh, the telephone company was a public entity until the 1980s or early 90s, and it was privatized. But now um, everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has a cell phone. It's like so um, I take your point, but I would uh, just suggest that these are trends that didn't happen overnight, and they're very, very difficult to reverse. And they have to be—it has to be both sides of the equation. And, and also, when you when you model the economy and the economists working on Puerto Rico. On the creditor side, we all joke that they have Greece PTSD because they, 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 it's all the same economists, you know, and they overplayed their hand on austerity in Greece and it was a disaster and they're just, they're just terrified they're going to do that in Puerto Rico and they could be right. And so, you know, when they, when they model an austerity plan for Puerto Rico, this is before the hurricane, you shrink the public sector too fast and the math tells you that you just send it into oblivion because you don't have an IMF lending them money. You, you just have cutting the public sector and cutting debt and cutting pensions. You don't have another tool. And well, you, 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 oh, just, yeah. We have a couple more. Sorry. <laughs> um, Tommy, and then there's, uh, and then we'll take the last question from the gentleman behind him. You know, understand what you said, it seems clear to me that we're gonna have to develop strong leadership. I mean, there are a few places um, in California where, um, you know, the, the, the right to your health care is, is weaker legally than the right to your pension. And so they went into their labor negotiations with that relative power and just said, you know, you pick. And they just, you know, wiped out the health care thing. And um, that was enough money to right the ship on the pension thing. That's, you know, that's one approach. There's some, there's some states where teachers, for example, when they get hired, young teachers can decide. They get paid X if they want a pension plan, and they can get paid more than X if they don't, right? And that's another approach. I think Maryland is doing that. There are Although places I, I would, out there. I would point out that choice is offered many places around the country, including the Puerto Rico. Sector. No, <laughs> including Puerto Rico and New York City, you can opt to have more money in your paycheck um, and not pay Social Security. Uh, so now we have a situation in Puerto Rico where much of the workforce is not covered by Social Security because they opted to get more money in their paycheck and now their pension system is bankrupt. Uh, so, yeah. sorry. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for, I guess. We'll take one last question. Okay, so I've got two questions. Uh-oh, all right. So one is, you mentioned that the federal government I, I didn't. A, I did say that. I, I thought that you thought that the federal government was thinking about bailout, and there was a constitutional limitation on potentially helping out Puerto Rico. No, no. I said it was the federal government's policy not to bail out state and local governments, and specifically there would not be no bailout for Puerto Rico. Okay. I'm sorry if I. So, forget that. Okay. So the second question is: There's a couple of public-private partnerships in Puerto Rico operating. Airport. Um, how is this impacting those? And do you, I think there was some press out recently about how Puerto Rico is now saying we need to urgently embrace P3 as a mechanism to start trying to do some of the projects that they can't do now because of this ongoing crisis. What's your view on that? Again, I don't see P3s as a game changer. I think um, on the margin, they may or may not work. Um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about P3s is everybody thinks you can do a P3 without paying for it. 
So um, there's nothing in the there's nothing in the fiscal plan that has a line item to pay for P3s. So that must mean that the P3s are going to be able to survive based totally on user fees, which I suspect is not going to be the case. So there's a play, my view, this is true about P3s everywhere. I think P3s should be looked at as an alternative asset delivery and maintenance and operating system and not as a financial panacea. But um, our president said two weeks ago that P3s don't work after that running on that, that uh, platform that it was going to deliver a trillion dollars of infrastructure. Now they don't work. All right. So I'm going to bring the formal part of the evening to a close.